1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network podcast series. I'm Sathara Thavani. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Doreen Kondo. Dr. Kondo is Professor of Anthropology and American Studies at the University of Southern California and author of the brand new book, World Making, Race, Performance, and the Work of Creativity, published by Duke University Press. Dr. Kondo, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today.
2: Thank you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate this opportunity, and I thank you for this wonderful podcast series that spotlights work in Asian American Studies. Very important Mm -hmm. for the
1: field. Well, thank you very much for that. I really enjoyed reading this book and look forward to our conversation. To to start off, uh, could you please, in your own words, tell us how you would describe world-making for your readers and to our listeners? How did this project come about?
2: Ah. Well, it's a long story. Um, let me first address the question of um, describe the book a little bit, and then I'll talk about how the book came about. Uh, World Making is based on over 20 years of field work in theater. As a dramaturg, that is someone who provides a third eye between the playwright and director. As a playwright myself and as a scholarly critic, so it's a long, long story, um, I deploy these corporeal epistemologies of anthropological ethnography that is kind of bodily knowledge based in experience um, as an audience member, as a dramaturg, as a student in acting class, as a playwright, and as a character interviewed and performed on Broadway by playwright and actress Anna Diverse Smith. Whom I write about in the book. Um, theoretically, the book draws on critical race theory, psychoanalytic theory, and affect theory to analyze the racialized structures of inequality in theater and the arts. So I argue that what I call racial affect is a key site where racial hierarchies are produced and contested. So the question is, what's life-giving to whom? What drains us of vibrant life and energy, and how is that? Uh, overdetermined by structures of power. Um, throughout, I spotlight creative process and backstage labor. It makes it rather unusual mm-hmm. in uh, terms of conventional drama criticism. And I look at the overall political economy of the theater industry. To talk about what I call the work of creativity, one theater artist actually said to me, those are two words you never hear together. Um, I'm happy about that because I think it's important to understand the larger um, cultural industry. I think the most distinctive contribution of world making, however, is its intervention into genre. I don't think there is anything quite like it the book is shaped like a musical or a play that is it has an overture not an introduction it's divided into acts that are separated by what i call contracts that is short first person vignettes based on my experiences in theater um act one the mise-en-scene sets up the theoretical scaffolding of the book and then uh the second part of mise en looks at the political racialized political economy of the theater industry. Uh, the second act spotlights the work of minoritarian artist Anna DeVere Smith, the African-American actress and playwright, um, very celebrated in theater, a pioneer of documentary theater who interviews people and performs them on stage, usually around some kind of Crisis. So I worked, for example, I was dramaturg on three world premieres of her plays, but um, in particular, uh, Twilight Los Angeles, about the Los Angeles uprisings um, I also analyzed the work of renowned Asian-American playwright David Henry Huang, uh, whose play Yellow Face explores the promise and the limits of the post-racial. And I've written about his work since 1988 and the appearance of M. Butterfly on Broadway. Um, The final act uh, of the book is uh, my play Seamless, which is a comic drama about the afterlife of the uh, incarceration uh, of Japanese Americans during World War II. The play is not about the actual incarceration, but it's uh, historical reverberations of my generation, the Sansei, who most of us were born after the camps. So how does historical trauma pass through generations? Um, how is that passed along? So the book actually has a kind of narrative trajectory, which I think makes it uh, what you don't, I think, usually see in scholarly work. So I use Melanie Klein's object relations theory to trace a kind of journey from a kind of passionate fusion with theater, is so exciting I can't sleep, to a kind of shattering, I think all minoritarian subjects have encountered this in theater, film or whatever, when, you know, confront the like flattening racism of what you're seeing on stage, um, to a more realistic and kind of sober attempt to quote unquote repair, to kind of gather the fragments into some kind of provisional alternative that's, and that alternative is not sort of healing that's, you know, fixed once and for all, Um, it's always kind of in motion. Um, So I argue that in the arts, we can engage this notion of reparative creativity uh, to repair the kind of shattering effects of structural racism and other forms of structural violence. So world-making argues that remaking theater worlds can help us to transform inner psychic worlds. And the notion of inner worlds was... Uh, concept developed by Klein, um, and that too can be an intervention in the larger social world. And I think above all, for me, world making represents an integration of the creative and the critical, um, and is for me the integration of life. Um, I guess I can go on about how the project came about. Again, this is a long story. Um, 20 years in the making. So I began as an anthropologist of Japan, as you know. Uh, I studied Japanese, quote unquote, concepts of self, as they were called in those days, and the performance of gendered work identities on the shop floor of a Japanese factory. In fact, I think crafting selves is one of the first ethnographies to engage with post-structuralist theories and subjects. Um, my second book about face writes a kind of transition from Asian to Asian American studies. I tried to trace the circulating Orientalisms and counter Orientalisms in the Japanese fashion industry and in Asian American theater. So I put together fashion and theater as my um, sites. In terms of the larger trajectory of this project, um, it might be useful to turn to an article of mine called Undisciplined Subjects that was in the anthology Orientations, edited by Candice Chu and Karen Shimakawa. Um, and there I discussed my move toward theater and the creative as and into Asian American studies or critical race studies as a form of decolonizing from East Asian studies and to some degree from anthropology. I still love my discipline. I love anthropology's pricing of what I call corporeal epistemologies. But this move toward the creative um, and the journey through this process is really shaping um, the trajectory of world making.
1: Well, you present a a very compelling work in world making. I think the narrative and and the trajectory that uh, unfolds really Does a lot of work on multiple levels, both uh, intellectually stimulating but also uh, emotionally very touching. Uh, Before we get to uh, the creative aspect of your work and and incorporating that into your larger projects, um, which seems like it is an extension of work that you have been doing for quite a while, as you say, I'd like to focus on some of the theoretical contributions uh, with which you begin in the book and. One very important contribution you make, I think, is the question that you raise, how by making art do we make race? Mm -hmm. Now, if I can turn this question back to you, what are some of the ways in which race is made through art, generally and and theatre specifically?
2: Okay. First, let me start and I'll, I'll elaborate later. But one of the arguments I'm trying to make in the book is to kind of destabilize the theory versus creative binaries. So one of my arguments is that Creative work or what we call practice and so on and so forth is enacting theory. So, with that as a sort of overarching comment, let me just say that for me, art to court, I think, represents a kind of vision of possibility mm-hmm. of transcendent human nature, the aesthetic sublime, and the universal human being in a way. So, it's you know, because it's exalted. It's the transcendent, you know, it's the kind of finest expression of, you know, the human and so on and so forth. But I think we have to question whose visions are these really and who's excluded um, and therefore who is not quite as human. So uh, who is granted a fully dimensional public existence? Um, And then in what ways are, you know, axes of power, the race, gender, sexuality, class ability, for example, Mm -hmm. um, reproduced, contested and so on and so forth. And I think that arena of public existence is huge. So one way that people, you know, if one is a minoritarian subject is to, you know, what kinds of stories, what do we write about, what counts as, you know, artistically significant, that's really important. For me, the issue of form is also incredibly important in the book. I try to address the issue of um, the conventional well-made play that I think all of the artists I discuss, including myself, are playing with to some extent. I think most dramatically, Anna Devere Smith disrupts this notion of the protagonist and the Aristotelian journey, you know, conflict, catharsis. By her modular collage, if you will, of individual portraits, so you don't get a protagonist, and you don't get a journey, really, you know. Um, and that also disrupts like Aristotelian notions of time
3: and so on—beginning,
2: middle, end—because um, you know, racism, for example, is not is has not ended. Or she's looking now at the school-to-prison pipeline, so that's still a problem and not easily solved. So form's important. And then I also concentrate quite a bit on issues of labor and work, as I said. So above all, this is like, who's getting the jobs? Who's writing the plays? Who's, you know, on stage? And the, you know, of course, the controversies about casting and so on and so forth are crucial here. Um, And who's behind the scenes? I think most people don't really think about that. But you know, one of the things that I really respect about Smith's work, for example, like the was its diversity in terms of both who is on the stage, what characters are being represented, what stories are being told and who is behind the scenes, including, you know, the lighting designer, very important, you know, set design, all of those things. Um, dramaturgs, crucially, um, so I very much respect her attention to these issues. It's, a, it's an issue of um, labor and of being able to make a living. Theater is not a lucrative profession. And I didn't realize how not lucrative it was <laughs> until I begin, you know, entered theater, really. I thought, you know, TV, film, more or less the same, but not, not so. Um, so I think it's very important to uh think about race making in all these ways in terms of, for example, um the backstage and backstage labor, one of the things that ethnography affords, for example, is like looking at the kind of minutiae of everyday life, the accountabilityability of everyday life, and the ways that small decisions can affect how we make race, you know like. For Smith, it's like what characters are in, what segments of her interviews are used, how are they sequenced. Mm -hmm. You know, all of those things actually bear a meaning. So uh, there can be all kinds of small decisions that affect uh, what goes on stage and -hmm. therefore how racism is.
1: So if I can follow up with the question, then, because uh, as you have been suggesting, um, your approach really uh, makes a case for not only attending to questions of representation, but also to questions of labor and the economies of production. So could you speak a little bit about what you see as the relationship between the ethnographic and uh, a more cultural studies approach to uh, study representation, how do these two work together and how have they worked uh, for you in your process?
2: Uh, well, I mean, just let me say that, it, you know, I certainly do read representation as anyone in dramatic criticism or cultural studies might. so mm-hmm. that's a given. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in many ways, it's part of the skill that I can bring to the rehearsal room. Like, this really isn't working, like, it's highly problematic in these particular ways. Um, I think ethnography as a corporeal epistemology is really crucial to the uh to my book. Um my own um playwriting, well, let, let me just say that uh ethnography or anthropological ethnography values experience um and the kind of fleshy messiness of everyday life. And I think for studying performance, understanding fleshy messiness is really important. Um, in terms of the, thinking about the um, project as a whole, I don't think I would have started writing about theater except for my own uh, initial kind of ethnographic uh, introduction to theater, at both as audience member, but as uh, a member of the first class in the David Henry Huang Playwrights Institute at East West Players, which is the um, Asian American theater in Los Angeles and the longest running, continuously running theater of color in the U.S. actually. Um, so as an anthropologist, I you know, oh, how are uh, Asian American playwrights trained or, you know, and also, like, it, I thought it would be a good source for context and so on, like, you know, to leave me, since I was thinking about writing about Asian movies. But then it kind of took on this life of its own. So it was really, like, having that experience was incredibly crucial um, to the shaping of this project and my emphasis on um, reparative creativity and, you know, full participation. Um, I should also, I also want to point to participation backstage as an indispensable part of understanding. So particularly where Anna Devere Smith's work is concerned, I think that her work in, say, journalism can often, she interviews different people and performs them on stage for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with her work. Um, she, her work can often be, I think, misunderstood, as simple simply a kind of liberal humanist, oh, you know what I mean, we can all get along, or you know, from one that e you this know, human conceives and all of that. Um being backstage, I think that there it's more m- far more complicated, and that she actually has a far more kind of power sensitive race conscious um intention and strategy. Uh so one of my chapters in the book looks at our dramaturgy all those many years ago in Twilight in Los Angeles, the year after the 92 uprisings, and examines, you know, circulating discourses of the 90s multiculturalism and so on. But also, what, hap- what happened backstage like, transforms my, um, appra- not appraisal, but, well, let's just say, deeply intensifies my appreciation for her so smith in trying to understand the multiplicity racial multiplicity of los angeles invited dramaturgs of different from different racial groups and yes you can say that that's problematic but it's better than not having them uh to help her shape the play or give feedback so she would bring in and kind of lip sync to then what then were cassette tapes um and then we would give her feedback in the rehearsal room and it was incredibly difficult and um what should i say she called them fiery battles like what uh segments should be used which characters should be in how should we sequence them what kinds of stories are going to be told here um but she welcomed that and was able to um take account of our, well, what should I say, survive our fiery battles, um, assimilate that, rewrite and perform. So just to give you an example of the kinds of things. So there was one evening or when she brought in some stuff on Asian Americans and I said to her, if this is the way Asian Americans are represented, I'd walk out. And, you know, I mean, that's like, really, I was in a very outspoken phase of my life and career. Um, and she, you know, she, understandably, she was like, not happy, but um, she, and she always says like, afterwards that I made her cry, and then I went home and cried, you know, different <laughs> moments, I was very volatile. But, uh, you know, ultimately, she listened. I mean, she dismantled that segment, basically. So... We had this kind of, I always say I've never cried so much or been so happy Mm -hmm. as when I worked on Twilight. And I I think that, I mean, how would I have known that without participatory um, observation, like, you know, ethnography? And I respect the fact that, like later she said that she wants her own prejudices to be assaulted, you know, as painful as it is. You know, because it makes the work better and it opens the way to other forms of understanding. So who does that?
3: Mm -hmm.
2: You know, I mean, in academia, we're based in debate and critique, but no one really, I mean, to have to actually take account of that, to incorporate it in your work or not, decide not to take that note. And then the added thing to perform, it's just incredible. So my respect for her, I respect the work, But, you know, it's like my fierce loyalty to her is based at least equally on her openness and generosity in the rehearsal room. I think she enacts the kind of openness that her work on stage represents. So it's it's very inspiring. So without the
3: um, ethnographic component, I would never have known
0: that. This episode is brought to you by sax.com.
1: I'm thinking of one of the dilemmas or things that uh, really we're debating and having to grapple with as racialized communities, both uh, in performance and, and media as well as in the academy and just in life in general.ly is this tension um, that continues with this line between people of color producing and acting in theater and this always present risk of perpetuating stereotypes. And it's hard not to think of things like Crazy Rich Asians at at this time, you know, to see uh, sure. what that line actually looks like. So based on your analysis, your experience and the attention that you're giving to uh, the actual creative work behind these uh, cultural products, uh, I, I'm just very interested to hear what you have to say about this tension. Is this a line that can be told and, and what do we do about that?
2: Well, Okay, so I'm uh, very influenced by Foucault and Butler. Um, so I don't think that there's any such thing as a pristine or perfect representation ever, right? Or or I don't believe that there's something that is somehow transcendent of stereotype in a certain way. There's always, uh, as you say, it's an always present risk, right? And I think depending on audience and depending on, on what angle you're, um, your angle of vision, uh, it might, I mean, to the extent that anything is legible, for example, it's reinscribing convention minimally.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: arguably that, you know, underscores a stereotype of some kind or another, or, you know, intelligibility means that it's legible and legibility always risks that. Um, of course, that's, and I also think that stereotypes are always haunting the stage or the screen. So we have those kinds of histories always at work. So I don't think there's ever any pristine representation. I mean, Crazy Rich Asians is an interesting example. I mean, it's a very small sector, right, of Asia slash Asian America. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, could be very problematic in many ways. The, privileged Asian and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, comedy is always hard because it's often very broad. And um, On the other hand, I wept because, like, what have we seen so many Asians in Asian America, you know, in a major Hollywood film?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, Joy Luck Club was way more problematic to me than Crazy Richie. So, you know, there you are. I mean, it's sort of wonderful in many ways. And, you know, it adheres to the... Genre conventions of rom com. Well,
3: it's a, I think, a very
2: good, you know, uh, but then that's also a problem. So I don't think we're ever, it, I think it's a shifting line. I don't think that there's a hard and fast line
3: mm-hmm.
2: almost ever. I mean, obviously, there are certain things that are incredibly racist and we don't,
3: you know,
2: countenance that, but. For with people of color, I think it's very difficult. So um, let me give you a couple of examples from Smith and Huang. So with Smith, again, in Twilight, I say this because there was so much at stake. It felt like it was completely life and death, you know, practically, like a year after the uprisings and tensions were still high and so on and so forth. Everyone's very invested. So in Twilight, there was one triptych, um, three characters together, a Korean-American family. The father had been shot, quote-unquote, lobotomized by an African-American, also saved by
3: African-American people,
2: right? But uh, so, and then there were, it's like the all-suffering, long-suffering wife, and then the nephew who's like a medical student or something. Anyway, so... You know, I saw this and I gave feedback to Smith. Like, why does the only Asian American woman in this have to be, you know, long-suffering and devoted? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like this is like what I have to fight every day of my life. Um, an African American feminist critic, very renowned, saw it and said that she was afraid that this family would become the locus of unassailable pathos, and and therefore in a sense, preempt sympathy for African-Americans.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, an Asian-American friend and I were just like, are you kidding? <laughs> you know, and we just it's like, all righty, you know, I see how you see that, but I never would have thought of that. And then a Chicano friend said to me, oh, gunshot, that's not so bad. Chicano's going to get killed every day. And arguably, that is also true from that historical perspective. Although there were Asian Americans killed, actually, in the Alphasins, so how do you, you know, what I mean? Mm-hmm. How do, how do you adjudicate that? There's no choice that is going to satisfy everyone, and in every case, it will perpetuate a stereotype of one kind or another, mm-hmm. right? So it's just very hard, and
3: then. Um,
2: You know, while cross racial performance, and I talk about both Huang and um, Huang's play and and Smith's plays and performances as a kind of openness to others, it can also obviously um, enact minstrelsy. There's always that, the shadow of that history, always. Um, And there was one example in particular that I used from David Huang's Kung Fu, which is about Bruce Lee. And interestingly, the director had African-American or all of the characters of color play across race, um, including, you know, white executives. So that was satisfying, actually, I have to say. But there was one scene in India where um, the white James Coburn, the actor, was played by an African-American man. There was Bruce, the Bruce Lee character. And there was the driver, who was South Asian, played by an African-American man. But played in a very stereotypical way, like with the accent, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So this is happening, and the stage, and I was sitting next to a South Asian American couple, and like the, the guy speaks, and they both go, Oh no! <laughs> you know? So, I mean, we all have to always have to be alert. Just because people of color produce something doesn't mean it's, you know, mm-hmm. not oppressed not problematic. Mm-hmm. So
1: I anyway. think in, in reading your book and in listening to you talk right now, what you do so powerfully is evoke that feeling that, as you say, um, pretty much everybody from a racialized, minoritized community feels when they're in the audience um, and they see something on stage and, and their relationship to what they see on stage. And so there are these concepts of racial affect and affective violence that you talk about quite extensively. Can you please describe these and the role that they play for our listeners?
2: Yes. I mean, I think anyone who's a minoritarian subject along any axis has probably had these experiences. And I use the phenomenological as the kind of point of entry into theorizing racial affect and affective violence. So um Okay, so how many of us have gone to the theater, museum, TV, film, and just seen something that was flattening that um, you have to recover from? Maybe you never recover from it, you know, might take a lifetime. So in the book, I talk about, um, you know, the moment of shattering in the book is going with an African-American colleague to see Clybourne Park, which, you know, won Pulitzer's, it won Tony's. The sort of stages white anxiety in the face of gentrification, and you know the fear that like we white people don't know what to say in front of them black people, um, and you know it was horrible <laughs> in terms of race, and the audience mostly white was just having a great time or la- maybe it was the laughter of discomfort, but they were laughing and. It's like my colleague and I, Shannon Redmond, it's like, what is
3: going on? It's,
2: you know, it's the crazy making. My colleague, also tiny calls, calls it racial gaslighting. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. you feel correct. Like everyone's like, what is going on here? And so, you know, we have to like run away, not stand up for the standing ovation at the end that everybody's giving it. And actually, Robin Kelly wrote to me and said, you know, this play was like an assault. Right. So, there, so thinking about affect as a kind of public feeling, that's in this case of like erasure, exclusion of rage, of sorrow, <laughs> disappointment, um, abandonment, and you know, and so on. Um, I think is structurally overdetermined. So that's where the racial part and the you know, obviously, an, uh, an instance of affective violence. On the other hand, there can be a different sort of racial affect of that sort of life-giving aspect. So when I saw, for example, and butterfly on Broadway for the first time, um, I was at Princeton that year in this very Eurocentric environment. And then on Broadway, there was this thing that I'd never seen before a beautifully staged production that was subversive of race, gender, sexuality, um, You know that I. It was so extraordinary that it's the first time in my life I felt I had to write about something, as if my life depended on it. And I would say that recognizing that life giving capacity is something that um, I hope that the book does. Mm -hmm. Um, To think about the life giving and life leaching aspects of everyday life, of the arts. So I'm drawing here on the work of, say, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who talks about racism as vulnerability, premature death, Foucaultian biopolitics, more of the last notion of slow death. It's not the spectacular event always, just like that slow leaching of life. And then, actually, my former Harvard mentor, Chester Pierce, is the person who coined the term microaggression. But the ways those little, it may seem little, you know, it's not, like, literally ending your biological life, but it saps your energy, encroaches on your space and time. You know, it takes time to recover from these, Yes. you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so it's thinking about that in a more kind of theoretical way. Mm-hmm.
3: Um,
2: can I – I just wanted to add quickly that um, – thinking about racial affect also also responds to some of the critiques that I've heard both in the rehearsal room that, Oh, you know, wanting to see yourself on stage, um, in a, you know, fully dimensional human portrayal is somehow, um, narcissistic in a pejorative sense. Mm -hmm. Um, or it's not, it's just, it's not about me. So I, and I've also heard this in academia, actually. And I want to problematize that notion of narcissism. And Freud, it's absolutely necessary for subject formation, for one thing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so the that notion that is always an only pejorative. And then Sarah Ahmed's like of that, um, and you know, and showing how the so-called narcissistic is um, important in every. Especially at the level of the nation state and it gets projected onto minoritized populations.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: the nation state needs to, needs kind of narcissistic <laughs> reflection of itself. Um, but then projects that need onto the uh, minoritized subjects who aren't doing enough of that. Um,
3: mm-hmm. anyway.
2: So there's the psychoanalytic theory. There's public feelings, affect theory, delus, affecting and being affected that are all coming into play. No, and certainly, of course, Klein
3: and, you know, Quote Theory.
2: So.
1: Absolutely. You, you bring together all of these different conversations uh, to really show the complexity of, of the work that goes both uh, on backstage as well as, as the works we see on stage as well. So with that, if we can turn to your own play, uh, The Full-Length Work Seamless, with which you very effectively conclude your book. Um, I'd love to hear more about that and why you thought it was important for you to integrate your creative work in this way, uh, specifically in ending the book with this play. Uh, in what ways does your playwriting overlap with your academic writing? In which ways do they that diverge? Or really, uh, are they um, the same for you in, in, in many ways? Um,
2: well, I'd like to... There is always a tension, I think, because in part because of the structural... Uh, what do I say that structurally and in terms of institutions, they're not given the same weight yes. or thought about in the same way. So that's the huge problem. And so I want to make a case that it's creative work should be taken seriously. I, you know, it won't happen in my lifetime. I'm well aware, <laughs> but I think the fight is worth fighting. Um, so the, so because i was looking at notions of reparative creativity it seemed uh important to think about my own efforts um to enact this kind of repair through creative work um you know and it's given me a deeper appreciation of the kinds of difficulties and challenges that artists have to navigate um it was also important you know, thinking about notions of racial affect, it's, um, I think it's important to follow out those moments that are affectively profound. So my play is really a response to something that happened a number of years ago. I was teaching at Harvard. I had taught a course on course overload. About which I'm still angry because I you know, uh, because, you know, the students were really hurting and, you know, it's the extra work women of color have to do, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. But, um, and I was interviewed by uh, a psychologist, then at Smith, Donna Nagata, who was writing about the legacy of internment in my generation. Um, and she asked me a question. Uh, and she asked me if I'd be interviewed, and I said, oh, of course, I'm you know, down with the Asian-American program, no worries. Um, so she asked me a question that was something like, did internment have an imp- impact on your family? Something like that, very general.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I started to respond, and oh, I couldn't speak. I could not speak, as though I were choking on something, or if I did speak, I would just, like, break down sobbing. So, okay. So it's like, what was that? You know, mm-hmm. and frankly, I've been director of Asian American Studies. I can't really talk about the incarceration too long without kind of choking up. And I'm not that I don't think it's my own personal idiosyncrasy. I've seen, you know, other people do that too, including Lance Ito, the judge at the um, OJ trials. No. You know, but it's like, so that to me is like, okay, what was that about? Let's investigate that. And that became the basis for my play Seamless about the afterlife of the incarceration, the kind of, you know, you never knew what your parents really went through and what's been horrible. We never talk about it. You know, the kind of silence that often um, occurs after um, traumatic historical incidents and how much, you know, you can only imagine how much trauma we're living living with now, with detentions and you know anyway it's on and on, right? So um so yes, I thought it was incredibly important to include that, to make an intervention, to try to make creative work count as serious academic work
3: mm-hmm.
2: to refigure genre and I've been interested in genre bending and subversion throughout my career so this is just the boldest attempt um so far Mm
1: -hmm. and could you speak a little bit about what the genre of playwriting enables for you
2: um well okay so interesting so playwriting for me for me it's the collaborative aspect of playwriting so as academics and particularly those in the humanities, rarely do we collaborate on anything, right? So, and other creative modes like novels or poetry, it's very much like the lone person generally. Sometimes you can perform and so on afterwards, but. So playwriting, um, yes, you can sit by yourself and there are those moments. But for example, if you're in a playwriting group, what, It brings, so you have to bring in pages generally and people read them even if they're not good actors. You have to hear it. So it's just like another way of thinking about performance, you know, I've been writing about performance throughout my career. So that collaborative aspect, the fact that when actors are really good and directors are really good, they bring things that you could never imagine. So it brings what, say, musicians know, right? It's like the collaborative um, jam sessions and, you know, eventual performance um, or, frankly, you know, team sports or whatever. It's mm-hmm. the, you know, the cooperative, collaborative aspect that I find really exciting and as a refreshing antidote to um, academe. And also, yeah, I don't know. So those things.
1: Okay. Uh, And and finally, I understand that you are uh, working on a new project right now. Could you please tell us about that? Um, What what are you working on right now?
2: Well, it's just in its very, very decent stages. um, But because people tell me that one of the major genre subversions that my book enacts is the acknowledgements. So it starts off the book, not in the back, and I talk very frankly about open heart surgery that I had in 2015, from which I've never completely recovered. We're not supposed to talk about that uh, in the capitalist workplace. And uh, certainly not an academe that prizes the disembodied brain. I mean, I've actually heard, for example, in departmental meetings, as if somebody comes up for tenure and they're like, oh, we're proud of him that he didn't bring up, you know, blah, 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 son's illness, you know, whatever mm-hmm, it was, mm-hmm. you know, or and certainly we can't bring up brief, we're supposed to recover in a week you know, from the death of a loved one. So, you know, so I want to um, contest that and bring that into the light, as indeed spotlighted. So the notion of vulnerability also draws to some degree on, you know, for example, Butler's work. So an ethics of vulnerability, a politics of vulnerability would um, ground itself in our openness to each other and our ability to... of touch each other but also to be harmed, right, to affect and be affected by others um, in all kinds of different ways. Um, So illness and disability would be one node. I probably at some point, when I am able to face the pain of it, uh, write another play. Um, But there are also um, theatrical works that deal with disability in various registers. Um, and I also want to uh, think about sexual and racial harassment. Um, that was the reason f- that I wrote my first play. My first job was at Harvard. And um, I, what should I say? Um, it was very, I don't know. I'll i will say this on the podcast, but Josh Chambers Letson's book, After the Party. So we read it in my cultural theory class. And it has... A chapter on a Japanese dancer and I looked at it and there was somebody who photographed it that I had known who had harassed Asian American undergraduates. One of mine. And I just like, I just went into ugly crime. I couldn't help it. It was just like unbelievable for Josh, you know, but, um, but that kind of formation of East Asian studies based on a certain kind of Orientalism, the supine, you know, exotic, erotic, right, of the Asian American woman, you know, so I want to think about sexual and racial harassment, but also think about institutional formations like East Asian studies and, you know, ethnic studies, the transnational, the trans-Pacific, as well as, like, to what degree are we treading in the same tracks, at least to some extent.
3: Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm.
2: So um, so all of those things, I think, will be part of it. And, and in terms of thinking about the positive aspects of vulnerability, I want to continue my exploration of performances that cross um, lines of race, gender, and so on and so forth. Right now, I'm interested in um, work of certain Latinx playwrights and artists who are doing that kind of thing. The Chicano-Latino trio culture clash, Luis Valdez and his play Valley of the Heart that looks at the relations of Chicanex sharecroppers and uh, Japanese-Americans who were incarcerated. Um, And then also the work of Kiela Alegria Udes, who looks at the um, histories of Latinx soldiers who were stationed in various exotic oriental locales you know in our various wars in the US so uh, those are some of the notes that I'm hoping to pursue with a new project currently called Vulnerable Theory
1: Okay well I, I look forward to, to seeing it when you're done with it. Professor Kondo thank you so much it was such a pleasure to speak with you about your new book World making as well as about your work more generally thank you for taking this time Thank
2: you so much.